I was so into that song because I love it. I forgot to turn my mic on. Anyway, I am going to talk about that song in just a second, but before I do, I want to extend an invitation to you. Um, I have been on staff here at Crosswinds Church for about 20 years now. I started when I was 15, and if you believe that, I really appreciate you. Um, <laughs> so I've been on staff here for 20 years, and when we were out at our other um, location, we used to do something every summer fall called um, Crosswinds in the Park, and we would all as a church descend upon Emerald Glen Park, and we would do like an old school church potluck, and it was the best. I would look forward to it every year, and so we would all come together. Crosswinds would provide the meat, like hot dogs and hamburgers and things like that, and then everybody got to bring their favorite side, their side dish to share, and um, it was a great time of just eating good food together, being together and playing games, and um, just being a church community. And so we thought, now that we have our property here, we don't need Emerald Glen Park, do we? I mean, look at our church campus, our beautiful church campus. And so next Sunday, we're going to do something called Backyard Bash that is a little reminiscent of what we used to do. And we are going to turn our courtyard into our backyard. And we are inviting you to come for kind of an old school church potluck. Now here's the thing. In order for you to know what kind of a side to bring, we need for you to register because we are providing the meat and like hot dogs, hamburgers, and vegetarian options, but we do need you to bring side dishes. So you got to register to find out what it is that you're supposed to bring. So uh, next Sunday, we will be doing that together. We hope you will join us for that. After the potluck in the picnic part, we are going to come in here and we are going to see a magic show together. And I'm, I don't know that I'm supposed to call it a magic show. It's more, it's an illusionist. Well, how many people, um, how many of you are here at Christmas time? And you saw the magician on the screen and he walked us through that crazy card trick. I couldn't believe it. I did it every service because I'm like, one of these times it's going to mess up. It never messed up. And it was completely amazing each time. So that same guy is coming back and he's going to do a one-hour show um, in here. And so it's $5 per person. So picnic, magic show, next Sunday, put it on your calendar, be here, register. It's going to be good to be together and just be a church community, okay? So I want to invite you uh, to that. Now, getting back to the song that totally distracted me. <laughs> I love that song, and it's called Bigger Houses. Um, I was recently introduced to this song, and when I heard it, you, never, you know when you start listening to a new song, you listen to it over and over and over? Well, there is a line in that song that was a kind of a mind bender to me, and I couldn't wrap my mind around it, and it's this line right here. You'll never fill an empty cup if what you've got still not enough. And I had to think about it for a little bit, and as I was thinking about that line, this image came to my mind that kind of solidified it for me a little bit, and maybe it will solidify it for you too a little bit, um, but the image that came to my mind is this iconic drink that we have all loved throughout the generations, the Big Gulp. Everybody knows the Big Gulp, right? Well, let me explain why when I think of this line, I think of the Big Gulp, okay? When the Big Gulp first came out over 40 years ago, the original size was 32 ounces. Now, this makes sense. The average human stomach can hold about 32 ounces, and it makes sense that you would get a 32-ounce drink because you can sit it and drink it all in one sitting. Well, somewhere along the line, 7-Eleven uh, decided that the Big Gulp wasn't big enough, and they came out with the Super Gulp, 
which is 44 ounces. It's 138% the size of, bigger than the size of your stomach, um, making it impossible to drink it at all at one time. In fact, it would take over three hours to drink this drink, okay? Well, yet again, 7-Eleven says, this is not big enough, we need more. And so they came out with a double gulp, and it holds 64 ounces of soda or Slurpee, you can get Slurpee in here, um, it contains, if you get the double gulp, over 500 calories and contains over 32 teaspoons of sugar. And it would take about five hours for you to actually drink this drink. You guys want to hear about the bucket gulp? <laughs> 150 ounces. And I'll tell you right now, I'm not even going there. I'm not even going there. It's ridiculous, okay? Well, even though this is kind of ridiculous, here is what the evolution of the big gulp reveals to us about our human nature, is that we have this tendency and this notion to live by this theme of not enough. However we supersize that big gulp is never going to be enough. But here's a really crazy thing about it. The amount of sugar and caffeine that are in these drinks actually depletes your body of water and makes you dehydrated. And so you're going to reach for the super big gulp and then the double big up and then the bucket gulp because what you are consuming is never enough to quench your thirst. It's actually making your thirst worse. And it is compounding your need to have more. Whatever is in that cup simply will never be enough. And I think this is really symbolic of how we live in our culture. Not enough, not enough, not enough. It's never enough. It's true of the big gulp, and it's true of other things in our lives as well. Um, take a look at some of these statistics. This one is staggering. There are 300,000 items in the average American home. 300,000. And with all of that stuff means that we have bigger houses, right? Like the song was talking about. The average size of the American home was nearly tripled in size over the last 50 years. 25% of people with two-car garages cannot fit their two cars in their garage because it is full of stuff. Now, this next one is a mind-bender for me. The United States has upward of 50,000 storage facilities, more than five times the number of Starbucks. How is that possible? Not sure. And then this last one. Americans spend $1.2 trillion annually on non-essential goods. In other words, items that you don't need. And we saw that evidenced, and it's not surprising because of that video that we saw earlier. So we are culturally conditioned to live with the big gulp mentality, the not enough mentality. And so whatever it is that we have, it's not going to satisfy our thirst. And so we go for bigger, and we go for better, and for more. And I'll tell you, if you are someone who looks at your cup, the cup that's right in front of you, and you think, okay, just a little bit more, just a little bit, just a little bit more. When you live with that mentality of not enough, that right there is enough to keep you up at night, right? It's enough to keep you restless. It's true that over half of us in this room um, lose sleep at night over our finances and our money, which is not really surprising, right, given the fact that we are in the middle of one of the worst um, economic downturns that we have seen in a very long time. Um, but what's interesting is that despite the worry over money that we don't have, we as a culture, 
we keep spending. We just keep spending what we don't have. This blurb is from an article that came out in a CNN business review um, this past March. This is what it says. It says, U.S. consumers kept spending last year despite historically high inflation, not only shelling out for necessities, but also splurging on restaurants and travel and other expenses. During a time when you would expect shoppers to be tightening their pocketbooks, retail sales and consumer spending reports far surpassed expectations. It appears that consumers aren't just resilient in an economic downturn, they are resurgent. They are resurgent, and that is fascinating. Why is there a resurgence of spending in the middle of the worst recession that we have had in decades? Well, I wonder if it has something to do with not enough, not enough. No matter how bad the economy gets, that feeling of not enough drives us to spend money even if we don't have it. And I'll tell you, if it's never enough, then we are gonna keep working and toiling and hoarding and gathering and envying and striving and exhausting ourselves just to get a little bit more filling that empty cup that will never be full. And that feeling of never being satisfied, it can cause your soul to be restless. And so what do we do with that? How do we begin to find uh, some peace of mind and some rest when it comes to our stuff and our finances? What are the truths that we need to hold on to today to give us some peace for our restless souls? Well, that's what we've been doing throughout this series is we've been sharing truths with you that will help to begin to settle that restlessness. And we've talked about a couple of things so far. We've talked about um, our marriages or our partners. We've talked about um, our kids and work. And today, obviously, we are going to talk about our money and our things. And I'll tell you, if it is peace of mind that we are looking for, there is no better place to go than to the words of Jesus, who is the Prince of Peace. And so if it's peace we're seeking, it is Jesus that we're going to turn to. And so I want to show you a story today found in Luke chapter 16. Um, one day Jesus was teaching a crowd just like this, and when Jesus taught, he would normally teach in these things called parables. And there were these um, kind of cryptic stories sometimes that had these layers of meaning. And so he would tell a story, and then he would start pulling truth out of it. And the parable that we're going to look at today has everything to do with the truth about your stuff, okay? And I want to show you what it says. Here is the story that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 16. He says, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. And so he called him in and asked him, what is this that I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. The manager said to himself, oh my gosh, what am I going to do now? My master is taking away my job. I am not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. And so here's the situation. This rich man hears that his money manager, who's managing all of his stuff out in the community, has been very irresponsible and dishonest with his money. And he calls him in and he says, look, look, I want you to wrap things up. I want you to balance the spreadsheets. I want you to bring them in to me. And after you do that, you are fired. 
Well, I remember the very first time that I was fired, only I like to say I was let go from a job. Um, I was 14, and it was my first job at Blue Chip Cookies in the mall, and I was so excited to be working in a, in a cookie shop. And I remember during orientation, my boss said, now look, on your break, you can get a free cookie and a drink, and, and that's your treat for working here. And I'm telling you, free cookies are music to my, it's music to my ears. And so um, I would wait every day for a hot tray of cookies to come out of the oven, and I would say it's time for my break. Because honestly, is there anything better than a hot chocolate chip cookie out of the oven? No, there's not. And so I would plan all of my breaks around when the cookies came out, but here's where I went a little too far with things. Every time a tray of cookies came out of the oven, I would take my free cookie. And so by the end of the day, I had probably had a little too many, a little too much of my uh, blue chip cookies. And so my boss came to me one day and she said, you know what, I'm gonna have to let you go. You are simply eating too much of our inventory. And so I got let go from my first job for eating too many cookies. Big life lesson, Crosswinds, do not eat the inventory. You can't mismanage what you have put in been put in charge of. And that's exactly what this money manager did. The money manager is about to get fired for mismanagement. And he has this temporary freakout moment. And he says to himself, oh my gosh, what am I going to do now? My master's taking away my job. I've never done manual labor in my life. I can't even dig a hole. I am not going to go to the gate to beg. What am I going to do? And he's faced with a huge problem. And then he gets this idea. He called in each of the people who owed his boss money, and he strikes a deal with each one of them. Look what he says in verse uh, 5. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill and sit down quickly and make it 450. And then he asked the second, how much money do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. And then the manager told him, take your bill and make it 800. And so you see what he's doing here. One by one, this money manager calls in all of his boss's debtors and he says, you know what, take your bill and cut it in half and give me the half. And so he's doing it again, isn't he? He is mismanaging the inventory and he's doing it at his boss's expense. Um, do you remember that movie Wall Street? Remember the movie Wall Street? Well, there was a money manager in that movie called, his name was Gordon Gecko, and there's this famous scene where he stands up in a boardroom of his peers, and he says this quote. He says, greed is good. Greed is good. And what I like to think of is that this money manager, he is the Gordon Gecko of the New Testament. He's going to make as much money as he can, and he is going to burn every bridge while doing it. And I think that maybe it would seem that this guy was really buying into that not enough mentality. When he has his freak out moment, he's thinking to himself, what I have right now is not going to be enough. I have got to fill my empty cup. I'm going to get fired anyway. Might as well go down in flames before it happens. But what happens next in the parable is really kind of earth-shattering. And it's earth-shattering because Jesus is about to teach the crowd how God sees our finances and our stuff. And it is not what they think, 
And I don't think it is what we think either, because this is the next thing that comes out of Jesus' mouth in verse 8. And the master blasted the dishonest manager because he acted dishonestly. Is that what it says? No, it doesn't say that at all. That's what we would expect. It says the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted how? Shrewdly. He was smart. And this is that record scratch moment where we go, wait, what? What? Jesus, this is not what we're expecting. What are you talking about? How is what he did shrewd or smart? Well, here's what he did. He recognized that he had some money left to manage, and he had a little bit of time before he got fired, and he had a little bit of opportunity and leverage that he had left with those debtors, a little bit of time and a little bit of opportunity to do something smart with what he had left. Now, I want you to turn to the person next to you and say, time and opportunity. Do it right now. Time and opportunity. Time and opportunity. He had time and opportunity to use his money wisely to secure a future for himself. Even though it was at his boss's expense, he was praised for being smart. Now, what I want you to see as well here is that it still says he was dishonest. Jesus doesn't say that he was all of a sudden honest, but what Jesus is trying to get at here is that he had time and opportunity to be smart with what he had. And that is the lesson that Jesus is trying to get at and tell us as well. And here is the first overarching truth that we find about our finances. And this is the truth that all the other truths are going to flow out of, and here it is. You are not a money owner. You are a money manager. You are a money manager. The money we have along with all of our stuff does not belong to us. We are simply managers of whatever we have. And every single one of us has been given a little bit from God, a little bit. Now, you might look at your little bit and go, mine is really a little bit. And you might look at someone else's and say they have a lot bit. And the people who have a lot bit might look at the other people that have a little bit and go, I have a lot bit, but they have a lit bit. But here's a a little bit, a lit bit. Oh, my gosh, not that. Um, But here's the thing. From God's perspective, from God's perspective, We all only have a little bit. And whatever bit that you have, it is because God has given it to you. And he is saying you have a little bit of time and you have a little bit of opportunity to use it well. We are the money managers. And he's calling us to be smart. Now, how does that help you sleep at night? Well, when you look at someone else and you think they have a whole lot more than I do, just remember this. It doesn't belong to them. They do not own it. They are called to manage it. It just so happens that they might have a little bit more to manage than you do. And I don't know about you, but I don't need more to manage in my life. And so when I lay down at night and I start thinking about that, maybe that will help me sleep at night and maybe it will help you sleep at night too. We are money managers, not money owners. And we're supposed to be smart with what we do with our stuff. Well, if we're supposed to be smart, I think the next question is, how do we do it? Like, what does that look like? How are we smart with our money? What are the truths that we need to know about our finances so that we can be smart managers? Well, it's at this point um, in the passage that Jesus kind of pulls out of the parable. And he's like, I'm going to start giving you the truths of this parable. And he does it at this weird moment. It really bothers me that he, he pulls out of the parable and he doesn't even address 
the fact that the guy was dishonest. He, he pulls out of it at the point where it's the record scratch, where we go, wait, what? What are you talking about that you're commending this guy? And he pulls out of it at that moment because that's when he has our attention. And that's when he had their attention. Because what he is about to do is he's about to tell them the truths about their money and how God sees it. So you ready for the first truth that he pulls out of there? Here's the first thing he says. He says, I tell you, use worldly wealth. Use what you have to gain friends for yourselves. Use what you have, like the dishonest money manager does, to gain friends for yourselves so that when your wealth is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Well, what does that mean? Well, what he is saying is, I want you to use what you have in such a way that when you pass away and pass on someday, at the end of your life, when you are received into eternity, because that's what we believe as Christ followers, when you, are en- you enter into eternity, there will be people there who will welcome you because of what you did with what you had. Use your money so well that people will remember you for how you used it. And so let me put this into a truth for you and explain Your net worth isn't your success story, it's your tool. Your net worth isn't your success story, it's your tool. And I think the question that we often ask ourselves is, what do I have to show or what will I have to show for how hard I've worked in my life? What does my net worth tell the world about how successful I am? And when we start to feel like our net worth is a reflection to others, of how successful we are, we can begin to lose sleep over that. Because our proof of our success is evidenced by what we have, right? I have the car, I have the house, I have the vacation home in Tahoe, therefore I am successful because my stuff proves it. But what Jesus is saying is that your net worth is not your success story. It doesn't even belong to you, remember? Your money was given to you for a different purpose. Your money was given to you to use as a tool. Okay, let's talk about tools for a second. Do you know what makes a tool a tool? Anyone know? It's exactly right. It's how you use it. Thank you. Tools are very precise. They're used to make changes on something, precise changes, to make it better, right? So here's a hammer. Let's put up a hammer. What's a hammer used to do? Hammer nails, right? Very obvious, a drill is used to drill holes, and a saw is used to cut wood. Specific jobs to impact change. And our money, even though we feel like we've earned it and we deserve it, is not given to us to bring us more satisfaction and pleasure, to keep filling that empty cup that is never gonna be enough, This is not the specific job of our money. God has given us our money to be used as a tool to do something with, to affect other people's lives and situations for the better. Um, When we moved out here um, onto this church campus, we began to realize and know that God had given us this campus as a tool to affect other people's lives for the better. And so we began praying and thinking about what God would have us do with this property and how we could use it. And it's why you don't see elaborate buildings all over our property. You see 
barns and things like that. It's why our build, this, this building, our auditorium we are in is a, is a prefab building. And the wood on it came from a barn on the far part of our property. We took off board by board and we put the, those boards on the outside of this building. And it's why our children's classrooms are restored sea containers. It's why we have Goodness Village on our property, our tiny home community that houses 28 neighbors who previously experienced chronic homelessness. It's why we have Sleep, on Heaven, Sleep in Heavenly Peace that is housed out in one of our back barns that builds bunk beds for kids that do not have a place or a bed to sleep on in the Tri-Valley because it's not okay with us that that is happening. And it's why we have the Eden Garden on the back part of our property organic garden um, that grows produce to give to those in our community who are in need. You see, Crosswinds, when your money is a tool, you get to do things like that, the things that you see on the screen, to help better the life of someone else. And Jesus calls that being a smart money manager. It's being a smart money manager. Well, uh, Jesus continues to um, pull out truth from this parable, and he goes on to say in verse 10, he says, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? Okay, remember everyone's little bit that we've been talking about. The little bit that we have that is meant to be used as a tool. Jesus is saying, if I can trust you with that, then I can trust you with more. But if you're going to misuse that tool I have given you, I will not give you anything more than what you already have. And in life, what do we call this? We call this a test. We do it with our kids all the time. We give them things to manage and see how they manage it. Um, if you set a curfew for your, for your kid and you say be home by 10 and they consistently meet that curfew, then you increase it to 10.30. If you give them chores to do and you're paying them an allowance and they're consistently hitting the mark with that, then you give them a little bit more. We test our kids all the time. Well, God, who is our Heavenly Father, tests us, his children, in the same way with our stuff. And, and this kind of leads us to the next truth that we need to talk about, and it's this one. Every penny you spend or don't spend is a test rather than a reward. It's a test rather than a reward. And I think that sometimes we lose sleep at night because we look at what we have and we see it as a reward from God. And if we don't have a lot then we're not being rewarded by God. You know, there is this notion in the Christian world that if we obey and we do right by God, then money will follow. If I give to the church and I do everything God tells me to do, then wealth will be mine. But isn't it true that there are plenty of people who work really hard and they have a lot to show for what they've done for God? And there are plenty of people who work really hard and who do not have a lot to show for it. I mean, I just think of someone like Mother Teresa who gave her entire life to serve God and when she died, she did not have a penny to her name. Biblical scholar Gordon Fee, he says that wealth is never related to a life of obedience in the Gospels. And that's because it was never meant, never meant to be a reward. 
It was meant to be a test. Well, what do I mean test, right? Um, He tells us what he means by test in this next verse. Look at verse 13. It says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And what he is saying here is that your money is a test to see where your heart truly belongs, to see what or who you are truly devoted to. And I'll tell you, in this verse right here, the assumption is, when we talk about two masters, the assumption is one master is God, and that the other master in this passage is um, Satan, his competitor, and that's a message for another day, okay? That these two are in competition with each other, and we're choosing between these two things. But I'll tell you this morning, God's chief competitor for your heart is not that competitor, Satan. Once you hit adulthood, God's chief competitor for your heart and your heart and your soul and your mind is your money, and it's your stuff, and the security that it represents. And what God is saying here is you only get to choose one or the other. There's only one question on the test, and here it is. It's a one-question test. To who or what does your heart belong? And there are two answers. You can choose A, God, or B, money. But do you realize that there's no C, all of the above? You only get to choose one. And the one you choose indicates who or what your heart belongs to. Well, you might be wondering, um, how in the world does this truth help me sleep at night? In fact, if you're telling me there's a test and that I might fail the test, this is doing the opposite for me. It is completely anxiety-inducing. But I'll tell you how this can let you sleep at night. When you can really grasp this fact that sitting here this morning, you get to choose, you get to choose, it will free you to serve God with your, your whole heart in your mind, in your body, and your soul, instead of chasing the more that will never come. It will never come. And in the passage, Jesus is saying, if you can choose that path, what you will experience are true riches. Now, what are true riches? They are the things that your soul craves, but money cannot buy. Things like peace and satisfaction and true contentment and joy. Things that your soul craves. So I think that we can expand on this truth, and here's how I would expand it. Every penny I spend or don't spend is a test rather than a reward. We saw that. When you test well by choosing well, it brings you true riches, the things money can't buy. And I am just wondering, if you laid your head down tonight and you experienced joy or peace or true contentment, don't you think that that would bring you a little rest? Well, at the end of this parable, um, Luke, who wrote this book, he kind of wraps things up, and he tells us what happens when when Jesus is done speaking. It says, the Pharisees who loved money, you can see where their heart is right there, they heard all of this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your what? God knows your heart. 
the Pharisees who loved their money turned their backs on Jesus' message and they walked away as if what they heard was just a total waste of their time. And as they turn and go, Jesus calls them out in front of the entire crowd and he says, shame on you, shame on you. You justify in your own minds why you continue to hoard and gather and amass for yourselves. You justify your not enough mentality and make excuses for what you have, but God knows your true heart. The fact that you're sneering at my message tells me everything I need to know about what your life represents. Crosswinds, how you respond to what you have heard this morning is enormously important. It might be really easy just to shove it under the rug, but your response and attitude towards money, it indicates a deeper choice. And it's not just a reflection of how you feel about your money, it's a reflection of what you represent with your life. When I was growing up, um, my dad worked for the Teamsters Union, and um, the Teamsters, aside from being known for Jimmy Hoffa and the mob, um, worked to secure jobs and fair wages and benefits for American uh, companies, for the workers in American companies. And I remember I was in middle school, and we were looking at buying a car. And the people across the street from us had a BMW. I didn't even know what BMW stood for. It just looked like a cool car. And I said, Dad, if we're buying a new car, let's buy a BMW. And he turns and he looks at me and he said, we are a Teamster family. We don't do that. We need to buy American. That was the, that was the slogan back then for the Teamsters. You got to buy American. We had to represent the Teamsters well by buying from an American company. Our lives, our stuff, our property had to reflect American-made so that we could represent the Teamsters well. And so we bought an Oldsmobile. And yes, I did drive my father's Oldsmobile all throughout high school. <laughs> but the point is, Crosswinds, we all have this thing in us that wants the bigger big gulp right? We kind of want the 300,000 things in our homes, and we want the bigger home, and we want the storage unit for all of our stuff. But the question is, what does that represent to other people, and what does that represent to the world? And so maybe a final point to ponder this morning is that your money is kind of like your trademark. It represents what or who you belong to, and I wonder what does yours represent? What does your money represent? Maybe the thing that we should really lose sleep over is not whether or not we have enough, but whether or not our money represents Jesus well. Do our finances, does our stuff, everything we own, represent Jesus well? And I think you know and I know that one of the hardest things that we can ever do is get into a right relationship with our money. We can put the truths on the screen, but doing these things and living this way is easier said than actually done. And so we want to help you be able to live this way. And so we're offering a class starting next Monday. It's called Financial Peace University. And it is an, um, I've gone through it myself. It is an amazing nine-week um, course that's going to help you lay a really solid foundation 
for your money by helping you put together a budget and live within your means and get out of debt. Um, most people who take this class, 90% are out of debt within two years. Can you imagine getting out of debt in two years? This class will also help you prepare for your financial future. Now listen, it's $80, but $80 to get out of debt in two years sounds like a good return on, invest on your investment, but I think the bigger gain by taking this class is in the title. It's called financial peace. And isn't that what you want when it comes to your money is just peace of mind? And so we invite you to consider um, joining us next Monday for this class and you can get more information um, about it online if that's something you'd like to do. Well, Crosswinds, you've been given a little bit right? A little bit, no matter how much or little it is. And what you need to know this morning is that your little bit can be enough. It can be enough. And when you see your money the way God sees it, it can be more than enough. These are the truths that we talked about today, and I want you to just look at them for a second and read through them. And maybe God is inviting you into just one. Maybe it's not everything all at once, but maybe God is inviting you to consider just one of those truths and to having your perspective change just a little bit. Because when your perspectives change, what, what follows? Your actions. And when your actions follow, your life can change. And so I just want to ask this morning, what would it look like if you could see your money the way God sees it? I guarantee you it will start to be enough, and maybe it will be more than enough. Let's stand and pray together. God, we thank you for every good and perfect gift you have given us. The Bible tells us that whatever we have that is good, it has come from you. We ask that you would help us to be brave, brave enough to trust you with what we have, brave enough to be good money managers. I know that so many of us here this morning, we are losing tremendous amounts of sleep over our finances. God, would you help us just take the next step and then the next step after that and the step after that. You want to bless us with good things, and we thank you that so much that true riches await us when we used what you have given us well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for coming. We'll see you next week.